Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 2. The book of Jonah, chapter 2. We are going to begin at the end of chapter 1 with verse 17, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 10. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word, the book of Jonah, beginning with chapter 1, verse 17, and we're going to read through chapter 2 into verse 10. This is God's word. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Please lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we come asking for your grace. We come for a God-sized portion of mercy and hope. That is what we need most, Lord, not quick fixes, not a few moral principles, not a little bit of guidance. We need good news of your rescue and your resurrection power. So, Lord, pour out your spirit now. Open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes so that we may respond to your word. Impart new life this morning, God, and revive us through your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We have been walking through a series in the book of Jonah. And the series is all about God's mission and God's people. God's mission and God's people. What, what is God doing in the world? And what role do God's people have in that plan? Furthermore, what do we mean when we're talking about God's people? Who exactly is included in that category? We have been following Jonah 
And it's already been action-packed as we've covered the first chapter, but we're coming into a new passage this morning. When we left the sailors last week, they were standing there, peering over the side of the ship. They had just thrown the prophet Jonah overboard at his request in order to still the storm that was raging on the sea. And now they are awestruck by the power that Jonah's God demonstrated in quieting the storm. All is now peaceful for them. But as we enter into this text this morning, there is a stark shift that takes place in the story. Last week, we heard the frantic cries of a group of sailors as pandemonium broke out on a ship and they called out for help. But this morning, we shift from the frantic cries of an international group of sailors to the singular lonely cry of a dying man as he sinks to a watery grave. The prophet's life is slipping away. He is being taken under by the waves. He is sinking to the bottom of the sea. And in a sense, as we follow the story, we too are dragged beneath the surface of the waters in order to see how the story continues to develop. The tension is continuing to build as we read this story as for the first time, and we don't know what is about to happen to Jonah. Everything is peace for the sailors above water. But for Jonah, what will come of him? We're holding our breath for what will happen next. As we listen to the lonely voice of a drowning, dying man, we are invited in. We're going to hear his anguish. We're going to hear his despair and his sense of helplessness. Has anyone in here ever felt like you've been sinking? Like the waves were crashing over your life? Like despair was taking away your breath? Have you ever felt utterly helpless in the context of life's circumstances, well, you're invited into this story this morning to lay hold of hope. In this passage, we encounter the hope of God's mission. And what we're going to see is that the hope of God's mission is this. It's the hope of mercy and the hope of resurrection. The hope of mercy and the hope of resurrection. Those are our two points for this morning. And you, my friends, are invited into this story. You're invited into this story and you are invited to consider how Jonah's story could become your story. And what impact that will have for your purpose in life. For your stability in life. For the way you relate to other people. For the way you relate to the world. What might it look like for you to encounter the hope of mercy and the hope of resurrection? Let's consider this as we look at our first point, the hope of mercy. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we, we covered at the beginning of the passage, if you look at the very beginning of last week's passage, chapter 1, verse 4, we 
we mentioned that the text points out that God was the one who was in control of what was going on. It said that God hurled a great storm onto the sea. It shows you that everything that's about to unfold is happening. God's in control of it. It's, it's a context that God has created. And in a similar way, it's the same thing that happens in our passage for this morning. Dotted through the book of Jonah is the fact that God is sovereign. He's the king. He's in control of it all. And he is going to milk the good, the bad, and the ugly for his own redemptive purposes. And in our text for this morning, in verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room, or should I say the fish in the room. Most people who are familiar with the book of Jonah, this is the part they know about. This is the part they're familiar with, and they think this is absolutely outlandish. And who could blame them? But what I want to consider this morning are a few ways to frame up this passage, in case you're wondering, what's the big idea with this this, this man being swallowed by a fish. First thing is this. A lot of interpreters immediately rush to the idea that Jonah, this whole book, is myth. That's, that's the genre. It's myth. It's really just an extended parable that is meant to communicate a moral principle. Others just outright reject the book. Because what makes that... That's so hard to swallow, if I can put it that way. <laughs> Pun intended. Womp, womp. Uh, what makes this so hard to swallow is really a foundation of having a difficult time believing in miracles. It's a rejection of the supernatural. But if the supernatural is possible, we must really ask the question, how is this text presented to us? What kind of genre of literature do we have here? And what I would propose to you is if we take the text on its own, own terms, if we look at it generically in terms of what genre of literature is this, Jonah's presented to us as historical narrative. That's my understanding of what we have in this text. It's not presented as poetry. It's not presented as a parable. It's presented as historic narrative. And here's the main idea I want you to get across. You must take in order to understand Scripture correctly, you must take Scripture on its own terms. You know how sometimes when you misunderstand a person and they say, no, 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 you misunderstood me. Let me tell you what I meant. I know what you heard, but let me tell you what I meant. And then they get to clarify on their own terms their communication. In a similar way, you and I must pay attention to what the Bible is trying to communicate. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that that scripture was written, it's been given to us to make us wise for salvation. The Bible wasn't written to give us a few moral principles. That was not the goal of scripture, even though there are moral principles in the Bible. That is not the overarching theme. We have to recognize that this story is not about a great fish. It's about a great God. It's about a great God. And what I want us to do is I want us to get in beneath the surface if you can suspend judgment on the whole fish thing for a moment and understand the theological message of this book, 
it will put your questions in their proper context. By all means, bring your questions. Interrogate the text, but let the text also interrogate you. Put your questions in their proper context. This book is not written to give us a moral principle. It's written to give us a savior. That's the point of this text, and that's what we get in this text. So if you have additional questions, we will open up for our question and answer time after service. You can feel free to email me. Um, but we're going to move on lest this fish swallow up all my sermon time as well. We continue through verse 17. We learn that God appoints, that is active language. God is directing this fish to Jonah. He appoints a fish to swallow up Jonah. And the text tells us in verse 17 that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is a cliche expression that is used in Semitic language in order to, in order to communicate this idea of going from the land of the dead to the land of the living. It's like this. Imagine... An avalanche occurs, and it, it buries some people under, under snow, and the, and the rescue workers go out there. They dig the people out. They find them, and then in the news interview, they say, yep, we were looking, and we, we thought they were six feet under, but we were able to find them. Six feet under. It's really trying to communicate the thought that we, we were under the impression that they were dead and gone. Well, in a similar way, this period of time that is described, it's not just three days. It's three days and three nights, and it's trying to communicate a common cliche of moving from the land of the dead to the land of the living. The fish, in other words, represents an actual divine rescue from the land of the dead. Jonah was at death's door. He was presumed dead. He was considered to be in the land of the dead. And this is what Jonah says in his prayer. That's the point. The narrator's framing this up for you. Verse 2, Jonah says, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress. He's reaching for the right words to communicate just how bad his situation was. He's trying to give you a sense of his anguish and, and his despair and his helplessness as he was sinking to the bottom of the sea. But here's the thing. What's painfully obvious, if you've been reading the story up to this point, is that Jonah has brought all of this upon himself. He's experiencing troubles of his own making. He turned and ran from the Lord. His heart was hardened. He was self-righteous. He rejected the calling of God. He refused the mission. And he was sinking down to the bottom of the sea. And he knew at that moment that it was all his fault. He had nobody else to blame for the consequences of his actions. And we have to remember that throughout this narrative, the original readers of this text, Israel, would have understood this story to be speaking to them in a particular way. They would have understood Jonah to be a representative for themselves. Jonah is a stand-in for Israel. But the text 
is searching us and exposing us as well, just as it did to Israel, the first readers. We too have to acknowledge our likeness, right? We, before we beat up on Jonah too much, before we get too self-righteous toward Jonah, we have to recognize that we have his affliction. We share his affliction. We too have turned from the Lord. Our hearts have been hard. We have been mired in self-righteousness. We have often rejected the calling of God. We have often run from the mission. We have often found ourselves sinking in an ocean of troubles because of our own foolish actions. But in this moment, y'all, we see something important. For all of his flaws, for all of his sin, for all of his failure, Jonah still knows to turn to the Lord and to call out to God for mercy. For all of the messed up stuff that's going on in Jonah's heart, he still, in the time of trouble, knows to turn and call on the Lord while he's in distress. And what is the result? What is the result? Look at the text. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he told me, no, that's what you get, dummy. Wait, no, that's not what that says. Let me look a little closer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, out of hell, I cried, and you heard my voice as his life was slipping away. Suddenly, Jonah feels a change in his surroundings. No longer does he feel the current swirling around him. Instead, he feels as if he's been enclosed in some, some strange, slimy environment. It's pitch black, and he's terrified, but he can breathe. He's conscious. He's, he's not dead. Then the realization strikes him. Somehow, someway, the Lord has shown mercy to me, and he has rescued me. And I want you to look at the hopeful pattern this book is trying to drive us, to inspire us, to motivate us, to energize us for the mission of God. And what we need to see in this text is no matter how badly we have failed, no matter how broken we are within, no matter what kind of chaos has ensued in our lives, we have the hope of mercy. There's a pattern for us in this text God gives his people a personal experience of mercy before he gives them a personal ministry of mercy. I'm going to say that again. God gives his people a personal experience of mercy before he gives us a personal ministry of mercy. Jonah is supposed to be a living witness of the fact that, that though there is a lot of sin in him, there is more mercy in God. God is more willing to pardon than to punish. We see that in this text. Jonah has been consistently sinful and rebellious, and God has been consistently gracious and kind. Israel was supposed to see Jonah as their representative in his failures, but Israel was also supposed to see Jonah as their representative in mercy. There was still mercy possible with God. He was going to reclaim his people. 
He was going to call them back out of exile. He was going to restore the kingdom. This is the message. It's a hopeful message. It's a hopeful message of mercy. Listen, what wet is to water, mercy is to God. What hot is to fire, so mercy is to God. You could sooner drain the ocean of its water than exhaust the mercies of God. You could sooner count the grains of sand in the Sahara Desert than exhaust and count and number the mercies that God has shown to you. If you had a penny for every mercy that God has poured out in your life, you would make the World Bank look like a piggy bank. He is full of mercy. And when that mercy breaks through, when your heart is perceptive to the mercies of God, you become passionate about mission. You become more faithful and diligent and driven to live as a missionary in this world. You long to see other people know that mercy. You look at them and say, I know what it's like to be stuck like that. I know what that kind of helplessness feels like. I know that despair. I know that anguish. I want to see them come to know his mercy like I have come to know his mercy. You are sent out with a testimony, a story to tell of God's redeeming power, of his faithful love. You may be going through the test, but the mercies of God assure you that you'll come out through the test with a testimony. Some of y'all know that. You've been through it, and you know the mercies of God. This text is intended to change forever the way that we look at those who are lost, those who are struggling, the outsider, those people. We can, we can see in Jonah the mercy that God shows his people before he sends his people to those people. Jonah experienced an act of mercy. God didn't say, oh no, I feel so bad for Jonah. I just don't have time to do anything about it. You know, I got a busy schedule. You know, I'm kind of running the universe here. God didn't look for excuses. His mercy was not caught up in, in, in emotionalism or sentimentalism. His was an active mercy. His mercy becomes action. Good intentions without actions would have done Jonah no good. And our good intentions without action do nobody any good either. In this text, we see the drive. It activates us. The, the hope of mercy activates God's people. Do you see it? God acts. His mercy becomes action. The God of mercy seeks us. The God of mercy saves us. The God of mercy secures us. The God of mercy sustains us. And the God of mercy sends us to go and do likewise. That's why we are here. God is making an example out of Jonah. You may be about some Jonah-type foolishness, but he is able to redeem you. You may have Jonah-sized failures, but there's a God-sized solution. This hope energizes mission. When the Lord floods your life with mercy, it enlivens your hope that he can do the same with your neighbors and with your coworkers 
and with your family members. God is able. If he's doing this kind of work with people like me, he's doing this kind of work with any kind of people. That's the story of the Christian. And so we go out with confidence. The hope of God's mercy gives us confidence and engagement with other people. What could possibly make us hold back? If he's able to save in this kind of context in Jonah 2, he's able to save in a Northeast D.C. context. This text pushes us to extend an act of mercy toward those who need it. This text gives us the hope of mercy. But what's even stronger in this text is the hope of resurrection, which brings us to our final point. The hope of resurrection. Do you see the mercy pouring from this text? Mercy that, yes, you need more desperately than you know. The text is saying, if you think you're, you're pretty bad off, it's worse than you think. But what you need to understand is God is better than you think, more merciful than you think. We get the hope of mercy, but the hope of resurrection. Look at the emphasis that emerges here as Jonah prayerfully describes his experience in this text. It's in the text. I'm going to run through and I'm going to grab all the phrases where Jonah describes his trouble. He says, I cried out, you answered. Now check it out. The flood surrounded me. I was separated from your presence. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I was at the bottom of the sea. I was knocking on death's door. My life was fainting away. Here it is. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, this is the hinge point in this text. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. You rescued me. You took me out of the context of death. You said the context of death could only hold me for so long. It had to give me up. He appointed a resurrection through the fish. And then his conclusion, salvation belongs to the Lord. Everything in this passage is framing Jonah's experience as a death and resurrection. This is the point of the fish. This is death and resurrection in this text. Jesus says in Luke 24 that all of the scriptures were meant to show us the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ and his subsequent glories. Jesus gives us the interpretive key for coming to texts like Jonah so that we will see him. This is why in Luke 11, Jesus says to the people who are asking him for signs to prove that he's the redeemer, that he's the Messiah. He says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so I will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He's given them a hint. This text is all about death and resurrection. Do you see this? In this text, check it out. In this text, we hear the lonely voice of a dying man. We hear his anguish. We hear his despair and sense of hopelessness as he's engulfed by the waves, as he is taken down to a watery grave. But Jonah's voice 
is not the only voice that we hear if we're listening closely. Someone greater than Jonah is here. If you listen closely, you will hear the voice of another. And this is where the details of this great God come into sharpest focus. Like Jonah, you hear Jesus calling out in utter despair and abandonment as he sinks to the grave. In his deepest anguish, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast into the deep. The waves and the billows of God's wrath washed over him. He was entangled in the cords of death. And just as Israel looked at Jonah and saw their judgment and their rescue, so we can look at Jesus and see our judgment and our rescue. Judgment exhausted, rescue extended. We can look on Jesus and see our hope. Someone greater than Jonah is in this text, y'all. In Jesus, we see our turning point because when the situation couldn't get any worse, when all hope seemed to be lost, when when, when they laid Jesus in the tomb and the stone seemed to seal his fate, early Sunday morning, Jesus got up and said, yet you have delivered my life from the pit Oh, Lord, my God, do you see these words are most truly spoken on the lips of Jesus? Yet you brought up my life from the pit. And when you know that you are united to Christ, these words become your words. That's good news, y'all. That's where the amen goes in. That's where the praise God goes in. That's the celebration right there. What does it mean to you that you can say, yet you brought up my life from the pit when I was mired in my own sin and selfishness, when I could not see the way of life, when I was continually making messes in my life, ruining my life, embracing things that bring death. You found me, and now I can say, yet You brought up my life from the pit. And here's the powerful thing about this text. When you know that that is your testimony, when you know that that is your story, that he brought up your life from the pit, then you can look at your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and those who are hurting in this city and in need of compassion. You can look at those who are hurting overseas, going through famine, who are being mistreated in trafficking, and you can say, yet you can bring their life up from the pit. You have that same hope of resurrection for them. And guess what? You know that you have a part to play in that. You know you have a part to play in that, and you willingly play the part because you're motivated by the reception of mercy to play a part in seeing others come to know the hope of resurrection. This is where this takes off. God can change the place of death into the place of life and flourishing. That's what we see in this text. Before Jonah gets to Nineveh, This is what he experiences. God sends us as a people who know intimately his mercies 
and a people marked by hope and resurrection power because we saw our own lives go from death to life. And when you see God do that kind of work in your own life, then you draw the same conclusion that Jonah drew. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray that God helps us to stay in touch with his mercy toward us, that he inflames our hope of mercy, not only for our own lives, not only for our corporate life together, Mosaic, but that he would inflame our hope of mercy for our friends in the neighborhood. Do you have hope that God will be merciful to our neighbors? Do you? Do you? When you have confidence that God is more prone to mercy than to judgment, then it, it takes away a lot of your apprehension about engaging your neighbors. You actually expect that it's likely that God could break through. And it gives you a holy, humble boldness. But also resurrection. This is where mission is heading, y'all. Mission is not the end. It's a means to a greater end. And that is all things new. All things new. God is out to redeem people so that redeemed people will participate in the redemption of the entire created order. That's the goal. It starts with creation at the beginning of the Bible, and it ends with new creation and our work within it. Let's allow this hope to shape the way we live in this city, the way we live together in love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you brought up our lives from the pit when we were sinking, when the waves of despair were washing over us when we couldn't catch our breath, when the seaweed wrapped around our heads and we were at the bottom of the ocean. It was there that you found us and you turned the place of death into the place of life and flourishing. We are grateful this morning, God. And we pray that that story would be a driving force in the way that we relate to the world around us that we would operate with great humility and great love, with great boldness and great commitment, with joy, with a desire for the well-being of the other. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people so driven by mercy, so driven by love, so driven by hope in the resurrection, that we would have a real influence in this place, that we would not be known as a church that exists for ourselves, but as a church that exists for Northeast D.C. and even for the world. So God, bless us to this end. Free us from the chains that keep us living self-referential lives and help us to actively participate with an active mercy toward those who are in need, just like we are. We thank you for this text and pray that you would help 
our hearts to receive it. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.